back to the bin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and this week I am joined by a first-time binser, Mr. Nicholas Prom. Welcome aboard, Nick. Well, hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Um, it's my pleasure. Now, uh, behind the scenes, we've been talking, as we were just talking before we started recording, probably for about two years now, Keep and kept saying, oh, we got to be on each other's show. And we finally figured out a some books to cover and we decided we were going to do a crossover and then life got in the way a little bit and uh we've just decided to make this a back to the bins episode and uh maybe comic reflections will be down the down the road at some point but for now we're just doing back to the bins but i think since we're doing it that way i should give you a chance to tell anybody who listens to back to the bins that isn't familiar with comic reflections what that show is well i tell you if if folks are fans of back to the bins that Comic Reflections will definitely be a similar uh, podcast experience for you. Um, every week we take a, a silver or bronze age book, drop some uh, drop some knowledge about the creators uh, historically, um, make a lot of jokes, just have some fun talking about funny books. It sounds very familiar to me. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> But, uh, yes, I mean, anybody who knows me knows Silver and Bronze Age is my sweet spot. Uh, for me, particularly with Marvel, but not it's not a matter of not loving the DC stuff as well. It's just uh, Marvel is where I Marvel is where I grew up, really. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we picked two DC books to do today. And uh, you and I are separated in age by, you know, there's a decent gap there. But we have no question about it, similar sweet spots in comics. Absolutely. Uh, Silver and Bronze Age are definitely like where I live as far as comics go. And uh, even though I was a Marvel kid, as an adult, I definitely became uh, far more uh, into DC. Still love Marvel, but um, pre-crisis DC is like, oh, that that's my my favorite stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I've often said, and I think the books we are going to do today are going to kind of reflect this a little bit. I've talked about how Right around 1970 or so, Marvel moved from the Silver Age to the Bronze Age. And DC kind of got dragged into this Bronze Age kicking and screaming because <laughs> they had flashes of Bronze Age stuff coming out, but they didn't really get headlong into the Bronze Age and really until until it was almost over. Uh, and these, these books that we're going to cover today really feel like Silver age Marvel to me. Uh, uh, yeah, you could say that. I mean... Uh, I'll agree. DC really kept its Silver Age formula for the most part for pretty much all of the Bronze Age. You had flashes of their, you know, the relevant type books like uh, the the Green Lantern, Green Arrow stuff, and mm-hmm. uh, pretty much anything Neil Adams or Jack Kirby touched were like kind of the the flashes of new ideas. But uh, but yeah, I, I think your estimation of DC at this time is pretty accurate, Paul. And every once in a while, they'd bring in somebody from Marvel. Uh, to get a D, to get a Bronze Age field, and and I'm specifically thinking about like when Marv Wolfman and George Perez took over the New Teen Titans. That that was a very Bronze Age book. Um, you know, like you said, Neil Adams. There was that that run on Superman with Neil Adams uh, when he deep depowered him and got rid of Kryptonite. Uh, 
you know that was that was kind of a little Bronze Age flash, but then they kind of went back to Silver Age after that. Yeah, uh, you know there, there was like I said, there was flashes of it. Uh, yeah, I think Firestorm is a very Bronze Age character. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and the thing about the trying to depower Superman is, you know, if you cut infinite power in half, it's still infinite. Uh, you know, they'd really have to had to have paired pair his abilities down to like you know 1939 levels to really try and do something fresh and and challenging with him at that time but but yeah not long after that denny o'neill uh uh take on superman it it basically reverted back to uh the same kinds of stories they did in the silver age mm-hmm. yeah and I, I it's one of my pet peeves is when when writers complain that you can't write good superman stories because he's too powerful and and my thought is always you can always create somebody who's even more powerful than him. Well, that and even if Superman is so powerful, with all the things he can do, there are still uh, he can't be in two places at once. There, like the story we're going to talk about today, there's some really unique problems put into place for Superman to solve, and they're not about punching something. Yeah. Well, there's there's also you know there's moral dilemmas. There's danger to his supporting cast. Yeah, there's just you know just emotional point. drama. There's plenty of things you can write. It doesn't always have to be about somebody who can punch more more strongly than he can. Yeah, uh, uh, and that's that's why I feel like it's a cop out when writers say that. Uh, and I would agree with you. And and it's also the the same kind of cop out when people say Superman's boring. Oh, he can do anything. It's like you haven't actually read Superman comics, have you? Uh, well, I, I go to I go to Superman the movie. Uh, yeah. When when Pa Kent dies and and he's you know just broken up over it and he says all these things I can do all these powers and I couldn't save him and yeah. to me that's Superman in a nutshell yeah you know he's he, he's he's not all powerful he's not God he's got these great powers he's got great responsibility not to to take Spider Man there but uh you know if you write him right he's he's just an incredible character he you know I think he's the greatest character in fiction uh two points I want to make here. That whole bit about uh, you know all my power and I couldn't save him, it's that right there is the essence of what Superman's about. Life is so fleeting and so precious. He wants every day to preserve it. Even his enemies, Luthor, he still doesn't want to see him hurt or killed. Yeah, and Bill and I just recently covered uh, Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey. Actually, we covered the yeah. first two issues. We haven't covered the third yet. But there's a, there's a part in there where uh, you know where he actually saves Darkseid's life because oh, yeah. he, he's got this moral compass that won't allow won't let him allow somebody to die even if he's not the one killing him right and there's no uh i don't i'm not going to kill you but i don't have to save you kind of uh thing from superman which is which is what i was calling for even in the review and i was like just let him die right. <laughs> but, but you know this that's my, mor- yeah. my that's my morality not, not superman's right. see and that's why superman is is a better moral figure that we should try to aspire to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and getting back to the the bit about uh, uh, not just always being a slugfest with Superman, Mort Weisinger, uh, you know, the the editor uh, from the late Golden Age and throughout the Silver Age, mm-hmm. he famously says, like, look, I don't want every issue to be the world's strongest man versus the world's second strongest man. Mm-hmm. It's so st- he really wa- wanted the stories to be about problem solving. And... Um, and- but a, a villainous threat doesn't always involve being able to outpunch him. Right, and this is this. There's some punching in the stories we're going to talk about, but a lot of it is the problem solving. It's a nice blend. Uh, I will say the 
I love the Silver Age Superman, but the Bronze Age, we do get more supervillain stories. And I appreciate that because I, I love a, to have a supervillain around. Even if it's they're just building machines to or death traps or whatever for our hero to try and get out of. Uh, I love me a supervillain. Well, let's let's talk about the supervillain we're going to cover here, and and we're we're kind of off format here, but uh, like we were talking about before we started recording, we're not we're not going to be slaves to the format for this episode. Uh, his his villain here is called the the Planeteer, yeah, and he he fancies himself to be Alexander the Great reincarnated. Um, he really like I was tr- thinking about him. I was just in the car coming home before we started recording, and I was thinking about him. And I really see him as the type of villain that would appear in an very in a very early Tales of Suspense Iron Man story. Yeah, yeah. Like, like he really just seems to fit that mold to me. Yeah, I, I, I think that's that's good. I mean, uh, yesterday or this morning I was thinking, you know, this would be an interesting villain for Firestorm to fight. Yeah, actually that 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 would be interesting very much because of his whole mag- magnetic thing and yeah. you know how would Firestorm deal with that. Yeah, and uh, especially the kinds of traps that Superman had to, to has to deal with in, in the story, as we'll get into. I thought, oh, the nuclear man, ha- if he had, you know, he and Professor Stein would figure out how to solve that problem probably just as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, do we want to go ahead and, and just get rolling with this issue? Sure, we might as well take a look at the first issue. Okay, so... And, and as we discussed, we're, we're going to kind of just discuss it as it goes along, as opposed to doing a synopsis? Uh, yeah, if, if you're okay with that. Sure. So why don't we talk about the cover first, which is a Gil Kane okay. drawn cover. And yeah. as as has been his want in the recent issues that we've covered that he drew covers on, uh, it's a very atypical angle. The composition is weird. Um, I remember as a kid not being crazy about Gil Kane. I, got, I, I grew to like him as an adult, and now I'm a huge fan. Yeah, that's but. the same same. Same uh, development I had with him as a kid. He was a little too hard. Yeah, his character was weird. You know, I think I was used to the Marvel House style, and so like these little different uh, looking guys, like from DC, were anathema to me. Especially the angles that he creates or took. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, Gil Kane. You know, I guess his probably signature character would be Green Lantern. Yeah. But, you know, he did do his time in Marvel. He drew quite a few Spider-Man issues. He was on the That's Hulk right. for a while. Uh, you know, he, he's done a lot of Marvel work. And there was a stretch there where he, where it seemed like he was drawing two out of three Marvel covers. That's true. In the Bronze Age, he was very busy doing that. Um, it's weird that I still, even though he did so much stuff at Marvel, I still think of him as a DC guy. Yeah, well, he, he was definitely spread between them. And he's, he's somebody who... Uh, who I regret that I never had a chance to meet him at a con at any point. Yeah, you and me both. I think uh, by the time I, you know, had an appreciation for him, really, he was like his life was near its end. So yeah, totally, totally missed the boat there. But um, so, so the cover to this oh. issue uh, has the Planeteer or Alexander the Great. He's closer to the front, but he's facing kind of at a, I guess a. I don't he's, even know what kind of angle that would be. He's turned away from us, like two, three quarter turned away from the reader. Yeah, towards Superman, who's further back and coming towards him. He's shooting some kind of uh, something out of his hand towards Superman, and there's rainbow concentric circles behind Superman, which I'm not sure exactly what those are supposed to uh, re- represent. And I think 
they offset the strange composition of this cover mm-hmm. in 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 a in a very ne- necessary way. <laughs> um, uh, the the colors may have been something like a, the art director decided upon later, but um, the concentric rings is not terribly inconsistent with the power set right. of uh, of the planeteer. But now, okay, so now let's just put a random age. Let's say you're 15 years old and you're on the news. You go to the newsstand. This is sitting there. <laughs> Are you okay. are you intrigued enough to pick this up, or are you just picking it up because it's Superman and you want to pick up anything with Superman in it? This is a hard question for me because I probably saw this in 1989 or 1990. Uh, it's from 1983. I'll get the the credits going in a minute, but I think this was the first Superman comic I ever saw. Hmm. Now, were you so, familiar with the character at this point? Oh, yeah. I mean, the Christopher Reeve movies were on TV all the time, and I'd certainly, I think I'd seen some of the Fleischer cartoons. Um, I missed Super Friends entirely. I was born in 1982, so I was like a, a, a baby when this issue came out. Mm-hmm. Um, if I, so I don't know what my 15-year-old self would think about this issue. I'd probably, I'd probably pick it up. I'm thinking my 15-year-old self, and I was older than 15 when this came out, but uh, <laughs> I'm thinking my 15-year-old self would see this on the newsstand and pick it up. But I don't know that I would be excited by the cover at that point. It's not great because Superman is not the foremost character on this cover. No, he's not. And he just he's drawn. I don't think he's drawn very well. His musculature looks very weird. Uh, you know, I, I think Alexander the Great looks threatening. He looks good. But I yeah, don't think Superman looks so good. Which gives me uh, two points on this. I have seen some some interior stories that Gil Kane has done of Superman, and they're fantastic looking. But he never really gets the cape right. He does mm-hmm. weird weird stuff with it. And then uh, Alexander does look cool on the cover, but in the interior story, his costume is kind of gaudy and laughable. Yeah, I, well, he just has the worst hat ever. <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely bad. But give me time. Maybe I'll think of one that's worse. <laughs> I mean. It's comics. There's always something worse and more ridiculous, but this is up there. I feel. Yeah, but what you say about Superman's cape is is accurate too. Uh, in an effort to draw shadowing on the underside of the cape, it almost looks like it's got scalloped edges to it. Uh, well, and it almost looks like it should be Nighthawk's cape. Yeah, and and oftentimes I feel like Gil Kane draws Superman's cape like it's like it's connected to uh, the small of his back, partly. Hmm. Yeah, because it doesn't um, look free flowing in the picture. Yeah, I mean, I could. There's a. Uh, you've seen. You remember that issue of DC Comics Presents where Superman teamed up with the Freedom Fighters? Yes. Yeah, and that had a Gil Kane cover. I do remember that. Yeah, it's one of my favorite single issues of comics ever, and because it's just like one I had as a kid. I just loved it. Um, but I always thought that cover was weird, and that Superman's cape looked just not right. And that was another prime example of it. Um, but say, Libby. Yeah. Um but yeah, um this is Superman number 387, cover dated September of 1983, but uh according to Mike's Amazing World the Comics it went on sale June 9th of 83. Um and we got this nice cover by Gil Kane. Um the interior story is called The Conqueror from the Past. Um Bob Rosakis did the plot and Paul Kupperberg uh scripted it. And uh, we have art penciled by Kurt Swan and unfortunately inked by Vince Coletta. <laughs> yeah, we've 
we've talked ad nauseum about Vince Coletta on this show. And uh, he's come up in this show, <laughs> this episode. <laughs> and and my, my whole thing about Vince Coletta is I think he was actually a fine artist. The problem was he took all these shortcuts that just sold the pencilers short. Oh, yeah. And, like, if you go back and look at his, like, you know, pre-Silver Age pencil work, it's beautiful. Um, but uh, I think particularly in it's, – it's prevalent in the, in the Silver Age, but in the Bronze Age especially, and especially at DC, he just turns in these hatchet jobs. Um, like, there's a lot of material he inked during the Dollar comic era that's just really bad. Like it's, well, his, 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 you know, his uh, thing that made the publishers happy was that he worked very, very quickly. But he worked quickly true. by doing a hatchet job and, and, you know, erasing backgrounds <laughs> and just giving, you know, cursory uh, efforts on certain things. When oh, he yeah. took his time, you could see you could see certain issues when he took his time and really tried to do a good job of inking. And when he did, it was beautiful. You know, like you said, the, you know, he had the talent. Oh uh, yeah, it was it was just a matter of of the you know rushing through it to try and meet deadlines that that yeah. screwed up people, and uh, there there are places on online where you could see where they'll they'll put you know Kirby's pencils next to Coletta's inks you know the in, uh, original penciled pages and you see the things that he erased and it's a sin it really is yeah um, although I do actually enjoy Coletta on Thor inking Kirby but again. Would have, would have loved to have seen all those details that he erased. Um, but um, you're right. I mean, he's the guy who just said, look, I am in a work-for-hire business. I'm just going to crank this stuff out. I'm going to make a lot of money. He was smart. He cheated the fans, but he made a great living. And yeah, a lot of did. people in comics struggled, you know, and still do. Um, but, yeah, I mean, one of the, the things you'll notice the most that's like an earmark of uh, Coletta is – the cheekbones on people's faces. There's a kind of a really thin line that he does that is, it's to give a face dimension, but it's just, it's so thin. I'm, am- I'm amazed that it's reproduced in a lot of panels. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I, I'm, I'm looking through the book now for that because I had never uh, specifically noticed it before, but now, yeah, now I'm seeing it. Yeah. Um, I, in fact, I've got a, an issue of Werewolf by Night right next to me that he inked, and I'm seeing the same thing. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, he it it's kind of a trademark, at least in in the uh, as, the further he got along in his career. Um, but but look, looking over this book, though, it does not appear uh, that he overpowered the Kurt Swan look. And that's that's a mixed bag because Kurt Swan, I, I Kurt Swan is the artist I usually align with Superman in my mind because he drew oh, so yeah. many issues of it. You know, I, I've sometimes I've talked about there's a difference between who, the person who I think is the best artist of a character or who I think is the signature artist. You know, for me, Jim Aparo is the signature Batman artist. Me too. But me too. but Neil Adams is the best Batman artist as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I I think. It would be hard to argue against that. Against that, I mean, Apparel's still my favorite, but I sure love that Neil Adams stuff. Um, so Kurt Swan is the signature Superman artist for me. I'm trying to think offhand who the best is. It may be Byrne. It could be argued. Um, that's that's a tough one. Uh, I'd have to give that some more thought. Yeah. I really love I love a Jerry Ordway Superman a mm-hmm. lot. 
Um, I'm, I'm going with Byrne off the top of my head, but given time, I could think of somebody else or I could be convinced that that's wrong. Yeah. Um, I love George Perez as uh, Superman in Crisis. That's mm-hmm. a great Superman. Um, I love Kurt Swan's pencils, and I, I especially love them when he's got a stronger inker that really brings out um, his qualities as an artist. Because when you've got, when you've got uh, you know, guys like Coletta or Frank Chiaramonte or, um, uh, excuse me, um, Pablo Marcos, these guys are just rushing a job to get it done. And I'm sure a lot of times Kurt Swan, because of the bulk of material that he had to put out all the time, because he was the guy they leaned on, I'm mm-hmm. sure he was kind of down to the wire a lot of times. And so, unfortunately, so many of his uh, completed works are don't have the best inker. Um, but I think of George Klein uh, or um, Murphy Anderson on Kurt Swan. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Um, and Swan himself, although they only worked together a few times, uh, thought that Al Williamson was the best inker he ever had. Really? Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. I never heard that. Yeah, that was his favorite, um, which is cool. I mean, Al Williamson was fantastic. Um, I would have loved to have seen Wally Wood ink Kurt Swan. Yeah. That's I mean, a, I love – Wally Wood Superman is great, but man. Wally Wood had, had a uh, like a little bit of a darkness to his – art that really i think what it would have contrasted and complimented swan really well yeah I, I i never thought about that but yeah i think you have a, i think you've come up with a combination that i would enjoy seeing yeah i mean if you go and look at uh the first issue of um captain action there's a uh, wallywood superman in that or in those issues of all-star comics that wallywood did there's a wallywood superman there um wallywood inked some um um some bob brown superboy stories they're beautiful um, it's it's a shame how infrequently you'd see Woody work on this character because he <laughs> nails him. Oh, I've I mean I've heard stories of Wood having you know, some issues uh, <laughs> back in the '60s, so I could understand why he wouldn't have he wouldn't have the body of work that you'd hope for. Right. I mean, he did some work at DC, but not tons. He was a very mercurial figure. Um, he. He got away with things in the industry that most people couldn't just because he was Wally Wood. Um, he's so beloved that people put up with him, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, he, it's a shame that he didn't live longer, but I think it's a case of the, the flame that burns uh, uh, twice as bright burns half as long. <laughs> I guess that's, that's definitely the optimist way of looking at it. Yeah. All right, so let's move into this story a little bit. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. I just don't, I just don't want to get all down now. Uh, yes, yeah, so the splash page shows the planeteer in his gaudy outfit, as you've said, uh, and he's shooting some sort of rays at Superman and throwing him back into the Sphinx. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we turn to the uh, GBS newsroom and uh, – Josh Coyle, the uh, director of the of the news program, is sweating bullets. He's like wondering where Clark Kent is. They're getting ready for this uh, broadcast from uh, Egypt, uh, where there's going to be a summit of uh, eight world leaders, a peace summit. Yeah, it's eight world leaders, and it's the perfect setup for the Planetia to come in and take over. Now, how, do, how does Clark Kent keep a job as a news reporter when he's got oh. a schedule to keep? You know, the whole GBS thing, I mean, I know they wanted to do something different, but it just doesn't work. 
if you're a, a reporter for a newspaper, you've got an excuse to be out of the office all the time. But if you are expected to be on the nightly news every night, it's, it's that ex- the excuse of, oh, got to go. Like You could even get away with it if he were a, uh, a TV news reporter who was reporting from remotes all the time. But when you're keeping a schedule, you know, as an anchor, yeah. I don't see how you could possibly do that. And how can GPS have him as their quote unquote anchor? You know, the the reason people tune in, you know, that the the familiar face you're supposed to see all the time, when the guy appears to be shirking the job and 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 begging off constantly. Yeah. All all that said, I guess it's it's a sign that the comic book industry predicted the end of the newspaper industry even back then. And felt that uh, it was more, uh, you know, keeping more with the times to have him be a, a TV reporter. Yeah. And it's so funny because oftentimes DC was so far behind the curve, the times, and this time they're ahead of the curve. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Lana Lang is a, is a, the remote uh, in Egypt, and they're setting up this story uh, uh, with the world leaders, and they're, they're about to go on air, but the planeteer come, comes along to abduct them all. And uh, so Clark has to bail and, and fly off to Egypt as Superman. Uh, so right right in this first shot uh, with the Planeteer approaching and the eight world leaders, uh, you could see right at the, at the foreground of the uh, shot is Leonid Brezhnev, uh, Ronald Reagan, and Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. Interestingly enough, Brezhnev was out of office in 1983. He, he he was his tenure ended in 1982. Uh, um, Nikolai uh, Tikhonov was the premier at this time, so this was a a, a flub by DC. And I, I've always bristled a little bit when they let things get too dated, uh, particularly when they actually say dates, which they didn't do here. But when you show real world leaders, uh, you know, real just you know famous people in the books you're dating yourself uh, yeah and, and and i i make the excuse that back you know 30 40 years ago they didn't think we'd be sitting here podcasting about these shows you know and you know at this point in time so they didn't they didn't really worry about the fact that they'd be dated at some point but it does lend a little bit of discomfort to me because we're trying to always say that things are happening on the here and now but you know, you right. put Ronald Reagan as president. Obviously, you know you can't be here and now. Yeah, I'm. This is a, a problem that that I notice in comics. Um, I, I'm. I'm. It bugs me less with uh, figures like who's president and things like that um, than pop culture references because those things get super dated. Super. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's why I'm not. It's one of the reasons I'm not very big on Peter David. Because he just loads his stuff with that. And it always comes across as very now, very happening, and very smart when it's published. But you go back on it, it's like, oh, man. Okay, this book came out right in 1990 because of the things he's talking about. Right. And then sometimes the things that were timely at that point are things that are still, you know, will stay in 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 the mind of the people. And sometimes they're things we've forgotten about. Uh, or, yeah. or, or, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, we weren't old enough or we weren't following it or whatever the case may be. So we didn't know when it, we didn't know it then and we still don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, the Planeteer has a stupid plan 
to conquer the world by capturing uh, these eight world leaders. As if no country has a plan for alliance of succession or anything like that. Even if he killed them all on the spot, it's not like the world would have to kneel before him. But he's, you know, to be fair, he's not real. That's not really his plan. That's what he wants everybody to think is his plan. But his plan, oh, his plan is, and and I, I'm, I'm a little lost in this, and I'm, we're jumping ahead of ourselves by my talking about this. But what the hell? Uh, his plan is that as Superman frees them. Each time he does it, something of the power that he's working with, the magnetic power that's holding these people uh, captive, then somehow relays into the planeteer to give him more personal strength. Right. We learn, and I'll spoil a little bit, we'll learn later that he's ha- he's found a way to harness the magnetic, uh, uh, what do we call it, magnetic sphere or whatever of the, of the Earth, the magnetic field, mm-hmm. uh, but artificially... But by use of these devices and these traps and this, the being freed by Superman, they're transferring the power into his body in a way that he can control it naturally. Which is they, that is- they really yeah, – that, that is the story. And you know, it, it, from a scientific perspective – and I'm not a scientist – but from a scientific perspective, that really makes no sense. No. You just kind of <laughs> have to accept that somehow he's found a way to do this. Right. Now, when I was – Seven, and I read this. Of seven or eight, when I when I read this comic the first time, this seemed like a, a, a an incredible threat. The stakes seemed real, and you know this this worked. Mm-hmm. As a child reading this comic book, I was able to go with this. I'm like, wow, this guy is capturing all these people. He's going to rule the world. What's Superman going to do? And it's my first Superman comic. I'm sure of it. <laughs> yeah, and and this there's nothing wrong with even you know reading this as a middle aged person. Uh, it's not like it's not an entertaining read. It is. No, no, not at all. It's just it's fun. You know, the story seems a little too simplistic, <laughs> or the right. plot or, is too simplistic, or just the the idea is big, but like all the complicated stuff that they're using to uh, to quote unquote make it work, they don't really line up logically. Yeah. Oh, I agree. So so as soon as he appears. He immediately puts the eight world leaders into uh, some sort of you know magnetic stasis prison. He announces himself that uh, he has reincarnated Alexander the Great and he's returned to Earth to reclaim that which is his. Uh, Superman you know quickly hightails it over there, shirking his duties as uh, <laughs> as a TV reporter, and he confronts Alexander and then goes to free you know the captives, but. Uh, he, he he isn't able to break through into the uh, into the pr- whatever the magnetic prison that they're in. Yeah, um, I guess at this point the planeteer's power is so centralized that it's it's strong enough to to keep Superman out. Now, when when that fails, he uh, he attacks the planeteer directly, and I think we have a really nice shot. You know, he flies up and then he flies d- directly down, hitting the planeteer with both fists at the same time in the chest. Yeah, that's a real nice shot. Now, how exactly the planeteer survives that is beyond me, because he doesn't even have the full magnetic power at this point. Well, I think we can no prize it by saying, okay, you know how when Magneto is fighting somebody, he's got the thin uh, uh, field of magnetism around him that keeps people from like, let's say the Hulk would try could take a swing at him or something, and it and it wouldn't hurt him. I think it's working on that same kind of principle. He he's. He, the power may not be like be in his body, but he has control enough of it where he can use it as a buffer. 
Okay, you know what? We'll we'll have to go with that because uh, <laughs> otherwise it makes no sense. And yeah, we do, like I said, puddle. we do have a very nicely drawn panel there, so I want to go with it. Yeah, and again, this is a this story is a nice mix of Superman problem solving, but also getting to throw some punches. Right. Um, so so the, the Planeteer uh, kind of takes Superman, you know, holding him with his magnetic powers until he takes the prisoners and disappears, which now creates the dilemma for uh, Superman to find the captives and rescue them. Right. And they do say uh, that um, the rest of the Justice League, those the ones, uh, most of them are off uh, out in space on a mission, and the handful that are on the satellite are trapped there by the planeteer. Right. So that at least they explain so, why nobody's helping him. And, and we get right. a shot of uh, Batman, Hawkman, Black Canary, and Red Tornado, uh, on on the uh, satellite headquarters, trapped. Yeah, and this would have been the first time I ever saw Black Canary or Red Tornado. I would not have known who I, who they were when I was a kid. Yeah, well, it, it, I guess at this point they wouldn't have been highly publicized uh, outside of the comics themselves. Yeah, I mean, the Superpowers toy line was over. Super Friends was over. Uh, so... Even yeah. Super Friends, you wouldn't have. I, I, I'm not sure if either of them ever appeared on Super Friends, and if they did, it would have been oh, fleeting. Yeah. yeah, that is true. I mean, Hawkman showed up on Super Friends, but yes, but yeah, these two, I, I wouldn't have known them at all. Um, I, I missed a lot of like the glory days of pre-crisis. I mean, I I think I became aware of comics post 1986. So, yeah, I, I I missed getting to have any of that like fresh on the stands. Uh, but a schoolmate of mine who who was really into Superman and Batman would show me stuff like this. So, I was glad I had that going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, uh, you got it eventually, so I guess it doesn't really matter when you do it. Uh, I definitely made up for lost time. <laughs> so, so Jimmy is trying to be a uh, crusading reporter. Oh and yeah, he, he's staking out a factory, and he gets bored and decides. Let me just call Superman with my signal watch. Now, if I'm Superman, I'm spacking him around for this. Yeah, you know, Superman justifiably gets mad. Because here's a story element that, that wouldn't play today. Jimmy is totally oblivious to what's going on with all this stuff because it's pre-internet. It's not the 24-hour news cycle. But even just the same, even being oblivious to it, you know, I don't give you a watch to call me that it's an emergency just because you're bored. Right, he calls him to, like, use his heat... X-ray vision to look into this building, and yeah, yeah, no, Superman's justifiably mad. Yeah, he is uh -oh. mad, and but then Jimmy gives him the, oh, you know, I didn't know. Excuse me. He, in fact, he does the Steve Martin. Well, excuse me. <laughs> and uh, and Superman's like, oh yeah, okay. Like it's, he's he's almost Superman's almost sheepish that oh I shouldn't have gotten mad at you. No, he should have gotten mad at him. He should have smacked him around. Yeah, I mean. And see, but see, that's Superman. He's such a good sport. Even if you, like, irked him, he's like, he's pretty forgiving. Mm-hmm. And then you he know? notices the symbol on the factory is the same as the chest plates on uh, Planeteer's costume. Yeah, he says, so, actually, thanks a lot, Jimmy. So, yeah, <laughs> And Jimmy has no idea what's going on, which is great. By pure so, coincidence, he, he pulled him into the right place. Now, the shot of him bursting through the wall... He Kool-Aid man's his way in. I like yeah, it. Yeah, he Kool-Aid's man his way in. But I, I feel like that is missing something as far as kinetic energy. It just doesn't look it doesn't look as powerful or as dynamic as that shot should look. Well, there's probably some speed lines or something that Coletta erased. You yeah, know? I, I'm not sure exactly what it's missing. 
It just doesn't look quite right to me. And it might be that Coletta erased something that would have made it better. Yeah. I mean, I I think we've thrown enough shade at him, but but yeah. <laughs> well, and and I don't necessarily mean I didn't mean that to necessarily criticize Coletta directly. I'm just saying I look at that shot and I just feel it could have been better. Whether it's Coletta, whether it's Swan, I don't know. Uh, it just doesn't look powerful enough to me. Yeah, I mean, because one of the classic images you think of Superman is Superman busting through a wall. How cool! Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is kind of a throwaway panel in what should be an exciting moment. Yeah, and it uh, comes so in, and, and I think part of it is because they decided to make the panel a little smaller than it should have been because the panel below it they wanted to give more space. That as he's coming into this factory, there's a sand slash mud creature. Uh, protecting or uh, standing guard over uh, another magnetic trap with two of the world leaders in it. Yeah, and this is pretty cool. I like this monster. It looks fun, and and the ma- the magnetic device looks so silver agey and cool. Mm-hmm. Looks like some Stan Lee would add fun describing. Yeah, yeah. Again, like like here it's 1983, and we have a 19 early 1960s Marvel supervillain setup. <laughs> That's what it feels like to me, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so he, he gets into a battle with this creature, and even he's having some issues with the density of the sand as it surrounds him, yeah. and until he realizes that this magnetic machinery is where the power is coming from, and he kind of does a flip into it to break it, and that... Un- unpowers the, the sand creature and frees the two leaders. Yeah, and Superman quickly realizes that the, the, the monster wasn't a living thing. It was just kind of a homunculi, you know, cr- uh, uh, created basically from the, or coming, uh, being generated by uh, the magnetic device. Um, but yeah, he's he frees Margaret Thatcher and, uh, I don't know, the Prime Minister of Japan. Yeah, whoever that uh, is at that time. I, yeah, I, I have no memory of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it was the Cold War. It was pretty much, you know, the West and 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 the Soviets. You know, that's that's the people I know. You know, um, but um, yeah, the 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 sand creature particles cling to Superman uh, to try and trap him. They lock uh, Thatcher and and the Japanese Prime Minister's feet to the ground. But Superman uh, does kind of a super powered flip into the magnetic device, uh, smashes it, and it. Um, uh, Solves the problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and, and at this point, we don't know yet that he's unwittingly falling into the Planeteer's plans. Yeah. And again, it's somewhat unclear as to why Superman needs to destroy these things in order for the Planeteer to get this power. If he's able to harness it that way, why can't he just harness it right into his body in the first place? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and it makes my head hurt trying to figure it out. So you just kind of have to accept... Uh, that there's some false scientific premise that allows this to happen. But this is very typical of convoluted uh, and overly complicated DC supervillain plots. I love DC comics, but you get this kind of crap all the time. Like, couldn't you... Like, it's ironic that that this Alexander the Great type of villain can't cut the Gordian knot and just get right to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if he did, I, it would make for a less interesting story, ultimately. Yeah. Now, now it's just Superman versus this superpowered being. True. I, and I think that's the conceit of, of what makes DC a DC. Like, let's uh, 
make these villainous machinations very complicated and almost puzzly for the reader to solve as they go along. Right. Yeah. That was, that was a Julie Schwartz thing and a Mort Weisinger thing. They were, they told their writers like, this is the kind of stuff that I want. And they did it. Yeah. And, and, and it's, again, you know, you have to, you have to kind of just go along with certain elements of it, but it is fun to read through. Yeah. Um, uh, so Superman creates this uh, kind of a magnetic compass at the fortress and uh, and heads out in search of the next pair of uh, captured uh, world leaders. And he finds the next two uh, at the bottom of the ocean, <laughs> uh, trapped in the magnetic device uh, or a, a cage. And Superman brings them to the surface slowly so they don't get the bends, which he mentions. It's like the, the West German... Um, Chancellor, I think. Chancellor, I think, that's, I think that's Helmut Kohl. Oh, okay. And then I have no idea who the woman is. I, I, uh, I think, I think she's, I think she's either like the Egyptian leader or I don't know some some country of that nature. I'm, yeah. I'm just leave it at that. Uh, but I really like. There's a shot. You know, he comes up and there's all these uh, sea creatures surrounding them, and they all look good to me. They all look like they're out of. Uh, almost updated versions of the, you know, the 1960s more, uh, monster comics. They look great. I love this panel. I love these monsters. They so look like Gil Kane monster designs to me. Yeah, they do. Especially uh, the one in the far back of the panel and the one on the far uh, right of the panel. Mm-hmm. I mean, they look straight out of something that from Strange Adventures that he would have done, or or in a Green Lantern story. Holy smokes! Um, and he may have had a hand in it, uncredited. It's anything's possible on that, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so Superman fights them, and until you know, he he realizes again to go after the magnetic source of the uh, of of the power, and that's underground, uh, and he eventually. Uh, so he, he 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 uses his super breath to force water through the gaps in the plating to build up pressure until it explodes. Right, because uh, because of the magnetic power or the sea pressures or something, he can't just punch it open. Uh, which I like. I like. Yes, I always appreciate uh, clever applications of the superpowers. And then once uh, he once he accomplishes this, that's when we find out towards the very end of the story that. Uh, that he's falling into the Planeteer's, you know, clever, convoluted trap because he, he yeah. you know, he's watching on TV, uh, the, the Planeteer, that is, and says, uh, I, man of Krypton, sooner it shall even be greater, talking about his power. But for the nuns, phase two is complete. So we know now that the Planeteer is actually happy that he's doing what he's doing. Yeah. One thing I want to mention, uh, the world leaders tried to tell S- Superman because they, they couldn't see the monsters. Yeah, I, I didn't quite that, understand that, to be honest with you. I, I didn't understand why they were only Superman could see the illusion, if they were right there. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was projected from this thing. Why didn't they also think that there were monsters? Yeah, it, it really didn't make sense. I And, and I, I mean, it seemed more to me like they were there, but they were created somehow by this magnetic power, as opposed to an illusion that was created. But... Either way, you would think, even if it's just an illusion, that it would affect anybody within range of it. Yeah. And I, to me, this is like, is Julie Schwartz asleep at the wheel as an editor at this point? 
Because we're, we're not giving any reason for that to happen, and we're not giving any purpose for that to happen. Yeah, it, it's just bizarre, throwaway, huh, kind of moment. Like, it, yeah. <laughs> and then it's never, we never come back to it. So it's like, why did you do that? You know? Yeah. Um, um, but we, we have one little vignette that closes out this issue. Um, visiting the Galaxy Broadcasting Building uh, are two people who are visiting a, a Walter Cronkite stand-in. Walter uh, Conrad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they reveal to him that the Planeteer is their son. And we're going to find out more about that in, this, in the next part of the story. But I think that is so lame and emasculating for a supervillain to, like, have your parents show up and tell everybody like what the deal is with you. But it almost reminds me of like uh, Charlie X on Star Trek. Yeah. You know that the parents come to get him and he's like, no, but you promised. Oh, that oh, wasn't Charlie X. Fair. That was not uh, Charlie the, X. I'm thinking of yeah, Squire of right. Gothos. Squire yeah. of Gothos. Uh, yeah, no, Charlie yeah. X is the same premise though, that they come to get him at the end. Yeah. But, but I was mixing up my two. Yeah. But, but the Squire of Gothos, it's uh that's a fun thing for like, a one-time villain like many Star Trek villains were like, you know, it's some God being on a planet that they encounter. But in a superhero comic book, if you are introducing a supervillain and you hope to use this character, like, Oh, it's a new addition to Superman's rogues gallery, having his mom and dad show up and be like, this is our son. He's crazy. He's, he's not a villain. He's a naughty boy. Yeah. I mean, that just kind of like takes away so much of the potential uh, menace um, <laughs> that a villain could have, you know. Uh, I just, I don't like it. <laughs> you can conquer the world if you want, but first come and have your dinner. Yeah, your exactly. father and I are waiting. <laughs> yeah. So now that said, this is a really fun issue. It was. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna defend that a little bit though, because I, I not that I don't agree with you. Oh sure, I, I do. But I'm thinking that the reason that's in there is to try and create some sort of psychological overlay for this character. Just instead of him just being a uh, personality-free megalomaniac who wants to take over the world, now we're giving him some layers. He, he's right. always been a little crazy. He's always thought he was the reincarnation of Alexander the Great. His parents have always worried about him. They're not coming out and saying, oh, this is how to defeat him. They're not coming out and actually emasculating, emasculating him. They're just saying... This is our son, and we're worried. So right. while I and don't I, disagree with your take on it, I think it's an attempt to give layers to the character. Right, and we do get some exposition in the next part of them explaining, you know, his obsession and how he became to do this. That's very important. We 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 need to have some reason or some motivation, or to know that the Planeteer is a person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. He's not just a bad guy who came out of nowhere and wants to conquer the world because guys like that are a dime a dozen. Why don't we go back to the 50s and just have a million alien invasion of the week stories? Mm-hmm. So so I get it, and, and, I, and I'll agree with you there. Um, it just doesn't – because it's his mom and dad and it's not like his inner monologue revealing, you know, I was always obsessed with Alexander the Great and, you know, whatever, uh, it – it's an important uh, level of development for the character, but the way it's presented, I think, takes away from um, uh, well, it some. Takes up- away from his threat level. Yeah, thank you. Um, but yeah, do, why don't we uh, hop into that next issue if, if you're ready? Sure. The next okay. one, uh, we have another Gil Kane cover. 
We sure do. Uh, and it's the planeteer is in the background, and he's looking very, very large. And he's blasting some rays towards Superman, who is significantly smaller and clearly in discomfort over the uh, rays. And once again, as you've pointed out, Gil Kane's uh, version of Superman's cape just doesn't look quite right. That said, I think this is a far superior cover to the previous one. And this one would definitely get my 15-year-old self to want to pick it up. Uh, I'll agree with you. Um, I especially love... I think my favorite part of this cover is the details in the planeteer's face that Gil Kane gives. is intense. Uh, I like it. Yeah, I agree. I like it also. I, I just think, uh, like I said, I think this one would definitely have pulled me in. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. I, I love down, we got the, down in the corner box, it says, the new DC, there's no stopping us now. And uh, I just love that era of like, or, or the, the corner box says, DC, where the action is. You know, that, mm. the, that, oh, I love that 80s DC stuff. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is uh, Action Comics number uh, 547, uh, cover dated September of 1983. Um, and according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it went on sale June 23rd of 83. Um, so this would be two or three weeks uh, after uh, the previous issue. So you, you had to have some suspense. You know, waiting for how Superman going to take down the planeteer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I don't, I don't remember how often they would do this at this point in time, where you'd have a story start in Superman and end in, uh, in, in Action Comics. Yeah, you know, I know. Eventually, but... we got to the point where they were kind of connecting all of the different Superman books, but at this point, I don't think this was common. Yeah, I think uh, I have a lot of Bronze Age Superman stuff, and it feels like. Superman and action tend to be fairly independent of each other. Mm-hmm. But then you get stuff like this that'll drive you crazy when you want to file your books because now I got to file action and Superman together. Uh. <laughs> well, it depends on how you go about it. I right. would still keep my action with my action and my Superman with my Superman. And if I want to pull both out, then I got to just go to two separate places to get them. Yeah. Uh, I will say, uh, when I say I've, I've got a run of a title and there's a, uh, another, a, a connecting issue from another series that I just have that one issue of or, or whatever, uh, I'll just file that with that instead of with its own uh, series just for the sake of my experience. Oh, I can just grab it and read it from a pile uh, in one shot instead of uh, digging through the box, uh, more boxes. That would confuse the heck out of me, but just uh, it speaks know, to my simple-minded nature more than anything else. There are only a few spots in my collection where I do that. It's like the the handful of Rom appearances that aren't in his own title. I just put them with Rom because they're done in one issues or they're they're one shot issues in the books he's guest appearing in. Yeah, there so aren't too many. I know he was in an issue of Marvel Two and One. Yeah, which is one of my childhood favorites. That was the only Rom comic I had as a kid. I can't, I, offhand, uh, I can't think of him appearing in anything else. He's also, I know he was on the cover of an issue of the Avengers, but he wasn't in it. Yeah, there's a couple of things he, like that, but I don't count those. Um, he's in an issue of the Hulk, and he's an issue of Power Man and Iron Fist. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, now so there's really just three, and then there more more often than not there'll be Marvel characters guesting in Rom's book. Yes. Um, like the two issue run with the X Men. That was uh, that was big. Yeah, that was the, a big with deal. The, the mutant Dire Wraith. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's a really fun story, and uh, uh, I recently picked those up uh, at Con for, like, a song. 
And well, those I, are- I, I picked them up for cover price from the newsstand. <laughs> well, I, that's still a good deal, but 50, 60 cents? Oh, darn, you know? <laughs> yeah, really. But we, uh, but we we are going afield here. Yes. Uh, sorry. Superman. <laughs> Superman. Um, our splash panel, we got a great montage uh, kind of recapping the events of the pre- of the, the Superman issue. So while that issue was fun, maybe you missed that or your newsstand didn't get it. You're not going to be lost going in here. Right. And, 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 I, it's, and, I, and they do it nicely. You know, pretty quick. They get through the, uh, the recap and on with the story. Yeah. Um, but I think this kind of stuff that you saw all the time in the Bronze Age, uh, I miss so much in modern comics. Not that not new comics are bad. I just give me a little bit of this repetition at the beginning because you should I, I agree with the policy. You should always treat every issue like somebody's first. Yeah, I think part of the thing is nowadays they charge so much for comics and the page count is actually I think lower than it was. Yeah. And I think they're hesitant to uh to have too much in the way of recap because you know, people are gonna people are gonna balk about it. You know, so they'll, yeah. they'll have they'll have that that you know, uh, a lot of the Marvel books will have that first page where they'll just describe in a paragraph yeah. what happened. And I appreciate that. Um, just like at the top on of a splash pages, they used to have that expository paragraph giving you the basics about a character or a group or whatever. Um, I always liked that. Um, and and I agree with with the, your stance on the modern comics. It's it's just I wonder have comic books become a niche. And, and the, sh- the audience has shrunk uh, partly because they're not easy access or they they don't have these recaps because it's such a niche and who cares? We're not even going to try to cultivate um, uh, a, a newer, younger audience and make it easy for people to come in. Yeah, un- unfortunately, I kind of feel it's the latter and that really bothers me. That they, they It doesn't feel like they're really trying to cultivate a younger audience as comic readers. They want the younger audience to be fans of the characters, but they're just as happy to go through other forms of media to do that because I think on a business level, they've come to a determination that that comics aren't their best source for revenue. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that comics have been relegated to only being available in specialty shops rather than the ubiquity that you and I enjoyed of the spinner rack days Mm -hmm. uh, where they were everywhere and they were cheap. Uh, if you got to drive to a, to a special shop that just has them and then pay $4 a pop, why bother when you can watch cartoons, uh, on YouTube or Netflix for free or basically for free. Um, so I get it. I mean, modern comics, I feel they're still, they're still in good storytelling to be found, but it's just like, they're just an IP farm for, uh, other adaptations in media and licensing. Yeah, I agree. It's it's you know, it's it's more just a matter of losing out on an art form that I loved so much that bothers yeah. me. Yeah. Um I love this and and I I I love comic books. It's my favorite storytelling medium. I'd rather read comics than go to the movies or watch TV. Uh but uh I I miss that I feel like uh it's it's a, a something that won't be enjoyed by future generations. Yeah, even my kids who were uh, fans of the characters, and my son has a couple of long boxes in his room, but they don't pour over comics the way I did ever, and yeah. they and they never will. Yeah, um, I think 
comics as an art form will still exist, but comic books are uh, are uh, kind of on the wane, uh, and I don't think they're going to wax again. <laughs> yeah, I, I unfortunately think you're right. Now, there may be some other format, some sort of digital streaming format that arises, you know, from the, from the dust of what we grew up with, yeah. but it will not be what we grew up with. That much no. I'm sure of. I don't. You know, I don't think there will be a resurgence of comics as we knew them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't think Spinner Brack is ever going to come back. But uh, I think if DC can finally get on the ball and have something comparable to Marvel Unlimited, I think that digital option people have it on their handheld device. That's the way you're going to get the kids, especially who are kids who are digital natives. I thought born. they did that. I thought they recently started something called DC Universe. They do have qu- quite a library of comics on there. It's it's not uh, to the level that uh, Marvel has yet, but it's respectable. And I think it's a step in the right direction. I mean, I- I'm I'm perfectly willing to pare down my physical collection and enjoy and have this stuff as reference that I can go to and, okay, scroll through my phone. But um, I still want to keep a lot of my... My uh, my old DC stuff in 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 four color newsprint format. Yeah, well, so do I. But I think that is more of an older attitude. I, I think you know, yeah, younger kids today don't necessarily have that same thought process. So, yeah, I'm just saying. I I, I think you know maybe maybe we're uh, maybe we're getting the, into the get off my lawn territory and the, yeah, and they need to well, move forward with the times a little. Yeah. Well. That's true, and I and I don't mean to come across so cynical. I just like it kind of makes me sad because of this fun thing that I I enjoyed and you enjoyed um, seems to be kind of disappearing. Yeah, I agree. But let's get back into Superman because we keep depressing each other uh, with talk like this. I'm uh, sorry. So I'm like, oh, <laughs> never have me back again. I'm so sorry. Oh no, no, absolutely. I'm going to have you back. Okay. But it, just well, thanks. Uh, we we pick up pretty much where we left off on the uh, last issue with. Uh, Walter Conrad meeting with the Planeteer's parents, and they they talk about how he was obsessed with Alexander the Great, and they even show him as at a costume party, I guess a Halloween party or whatever, and people are in various things, and he's dressed up as Alexander the Great back then. Yeah. Uh, and that he's, you know, used his uh, genius to uh, tap into the planet's natural magnetic field and direct it for his own uses which is quickly followed up with kind of a magnetic attack on the uh, studio. Yeah, it's convenient. Like, okay, we get a couple of pages of, like, uh, important exposition and then back into the action with Superman. Um, As I was reading this, it occurred to me, this is just two years before another certain, uh, a certain other character obsessed and patterned after Alexander the Great came about. Uh, In Little Book Watchmen? Yeah. Ozymandias mm-hmm. is is a much better planeteer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely a, a more uh, a more epic planeteer. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and whereas Ozymandias, um, you know, remarked, "I'm not a Republic serial villain. I'm not going to explain my plan, you know, you know, and then you know allow you to thwart it. I did it 15 minutes ago." Well. The Planeteer is the type to explain his plan pretty much when he thinks he's got you on the ropes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he's more he's more uh, uh, stereotypical. Yes, yes. Um, so we, we pick up on Superman's uh, 
you know his search for the world leaders, which leads him to a a uh, an active volcano. Uh, oh, in, and I love this. Indonesia. I thought this trap was so brilliant. Uh, also, as an aside, we got this great ad for the Sergeant Rock toys from Remco. Great art by Joe Kubert. Mm-hmm. Oh God. Yeah, I've I've always I've always loved Joe Kubert's art, and uh, Scott and I have had some disagreements on that because he's not a fan. Well, what can you do? Well, you know, different different tastes for different people. No, you know, no issue there. Oh yeah. So yeah, this this is as you said, this is a, a pretty cool plan because the problem is if he destroys the magnet, the field around the two world leaders will disappear, and they'll die from uh, from the molten lava that they're in. Yeah. So what Superman does is okay. He can't lift up the device or move it. He finds, but he says, okay, wait. If I peel off the the, the armor plating on it that's protecting it from the volcano and put it around the magnetic field that's generating, uh, if I move quickly enough, um, I can do it before the, uh, the, the, mach- the inner machinery is melted uh, and, and, and the field disappears and then the leaders are killed. So he does moves at super speed and saves Brezhnev and some other guy. Um, and I thought that was really great. Um, flies them off. Uh, but, this, but, think, but ultimately, the Planeteer says, and thus the meddling fool completes phase three. Yeah. Um, this particular trap, I thought, oh, I could totally see Firestorm uh, uh, having to deal with this problem. And, and probably coming to a similar uh, uh, solution, although he could transmute the matter or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he probably would have created a shield uh, around the, mag- uh, the, the magnetic force field uh, and then destroyed the machine by some other means, turned it into bubbles. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, the planeteer now, his plan is uh, in full effect. Um, Superman is going off looking for uh, something, and I kind of lost track of where it is. He's just trying to well, find the planeteer. He's got, he's got six, he's rescued six of the uh, eight world leaders at this point, so he's looking for the last two. Oh, okay. And he That's- concludes that the first one had, I guess, the mud creature, which is Earth. The second one had the, uh, the, the water creatures. This one had fire. So then he, th- he starts looking in the air, figuring that it's the fourth element. That's right. And yeah, because in, especially in the ancient world, the world of Alexander, those were the four elements that we thought of. And, uh, and that trope comes uh, back again and again throughout fiction. Uh, it's a great formula especially for the old classic uh dc setup of uh having a bunch of problems to solve well that in that one in a very recent episode that as we record this has not yet aired uh we covered an issue of the fantastic four where that's kind of the trope where the thing is the rocks uh you know human torch fire uh mr fantastic being as malleable as he is is water and sue storm being invisible as air yeah, and, and they play with that elemental thing in, in an issue that we covered. I I think I've read that issue. I don't know what number it is, but that sounds well, super familiar. <laughs> the one we covered was the first issue of the John Byrne run, which is two thirty two, I believe, and that's uh and that that's kind of the setup for it. Yeah, I'm sure I've, <laughs> I'm sure I have. Um, so now, as Superman is is scouring for this uh, last trap. Uh, there's, there's a shot of him flying through the sky, another one which I, I just have to point out because I just don't like the way it looks. 
there's there's the shot where the page where he's looking in the various vessels in the sky. I was really worried about this rocket or missile. It's like, wait a sec, where's that going? Is that a bomb? <laughs> yeah, that almost looks like one. But I'm talking about the next page after that in the very middle where he's flying, okay. and that just I just don't like the way that looks at all. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty lame. Uh, also, panel one of that very page, I'm I'm not crazy about. Um, well, you, you know what the problem I have with that one is the flying lines, the movement lines, because he just seems to be flying in a very awkward position considering the, the direction he's traveling. Yeah, um, why is he holding his hands uh, in in opposing directions? Usually when a, a hero, especially Superman, goes, it's usually both hands are in going in one direction, like, this is the direction I'm going. Yeah, straight ahead usually. Yeah, or turning, you know, or something. But uh, yeah, it, it's... I, it looks really awkward, and it doesn't. Uh, it does. It just doesn't look right. Mm-hmm. And, and neither shot conveys the speed that he's supposed to be traveling at. You're right. It looks like uh, kind of uh, lackadaisical flying. You know. Yeah. It almost looks like he's just kind of like floating. Uh, but meanwhile, we see a shot of the Earth with all these lines around it, showing how fast he's traveling around it. And you know what scene that reminds me of? Oh, Superman the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I thought of that right away. I saw this. I'm like, oh, you turn back time again? <laughs> so he it's finally so he finally was... finds the last. Oh. I'm sorry, you were you say something? I was just gonna say it's so funny how when you're a kid you totally buy that. Like, oh, okay, he'll just turn the earth around. Like, why would that work ever? <laughs> to, to, to turn back I, time. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, I love it, but I mean, it just huh? <laughs> but as a kid, I totally bought it, which is, I mean. I still, I, I can't sit here and say I buy it, but I can't totally not buy it because I don't know what would happen if you could travel that fast. You know, theoretically, you're traveling so fast that you're reversing things. I, I don't know. It, it makes no sense in my mind, but then time travel is just so, sort of a conceit you have to have. And time travel creates such great stories. So I'm just going to go with yeah. it. I mean, and... I mean, it's the same thing they do in Star Trek Four that you travel around the sun so fast that you go back in time. Yeah, like, why does the sun have anything to do with it? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, But it's, there's, you know, there's like a couple of theories of of time. It's like, is it like a river constantly moving in one direction? And therefore, in theory, could we go in that, reversely in that direction? Or is it like an ocean with all, like, time is really an illusion and all the things that have happened are essentially... Uh, just moving parts that could happen in any order. They're talking about this in the current Hawkman series, and they explain it better than I. Right. The, the but... river one is effectively explained in uh, Lost, the TV series. Oh, okay. I and and they discuss not... they discuss that about how like if you're trying to change time, if you're thinking of it as a river, you need to do something significant because if you throw a pebble into a river, it makes no difference. So you'd have to do something significant that's actually going to alter what goes on. Otherwise, it's just you know going to march forward to where it's going anyway. Uh, and and I, I found that to be an interesting thought process. Yeah. Um, you know, and time, it it kind of goes against the butterfly effect where they're saying any little thing could change. Time. Yeah, or or the grandfather theory. You know, if you go back, if you travel back in time and kill your grandfather, uh, by the time time catches up, are you even alive to have gone back in the first place? That you, kind of you, thing. You create a time paradox. Yeah, uh, and I love all that kind of crap. I mean, we could never know, but it's it's wonderfully fun to speculate. Yeah, that's what science fiction's about. Yeah, I love it. I love it. 
But uh, I guess back to Superman. Yeah, he finally finds the last two world leaders uh, in the clouds uh, with with yet another uh, magnetic device. And the dilemma here is that it's moving without him touching it. Uh, and, and he thinks the Planeteer set up a magnetic field around the generator. And uh, the Planeteer is actually annoyed because he didn't. Right. I think it's what the conceit is that Superman absorbed enough uh, magnetic charge by uh, uh, disabling all these other devices that it's kind of thwarting uh, the Planeteer's plan mm-hmm. on, uh, without Superman even trying. Yeah, and he, he's unable to touch it, but then he comes up with he comes up with another plan. Where he he first he tries to throw a uh, a ship at it. Yeah, from, he finds the, an old, a sunken battleship from World War II and throws it. At it. And and that that doesn't do the trick, which is just kind of an interesting thing that he that that they even put that in there. But finally, he just flies so fast in circles around it to create a counterforce to the magnetism, and he's able to uh, to to bring down the magnetic device and then smash it. And then uh, the Planeteer is thrilled because now he's got the energies flooding his being, filling every molecule beyond even his expectations. Power to rule all of puny mankind. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah. And uh, so, boy, he had to do all that just to get this power to be an an internal uh, force, not an external thing that he controlled. Uh, So that's kind of fun. Uh, He interrupts... uh, uh, our viewings of uh, Laverne and Shirley, uh, uh, the broadcast, <laughs> as people are watching at home, he says, "Attention, my subjects, and heed the world of your master. He who is exiled, the, 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 you know, and on and on and on. He just, how great I am, and now I rule you. That kind of crap. Um, and then Superman finds him, and uh, back in Egypt, and boy, then it's just the old Dukeroo for several pages across the globe. Mm-hmm. Uh, now this is a lot of fun." Um, the Planeteer is at peak power, and they're tossing each other uh, across the world like rag dolls, crashing into the Great Wall of China, into the Florida or the the California redwoods. Um, uh, and then he's he's in England, right? When yeah. He goes through yeah. And it's, 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 the, it's the super bloke doing ear. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh. I thought that was kind of bad, but I mean, it, it, it gave us a, a, a physical stamp of where they were, um, because otherwise it could have been anywhere, really. <laughs> uh, but then, as they've just been knocking each other back and forth, Superman knocks uh, the plant here to uh, the North Pole, which is very important. And in his arrogance, Alexander says, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, here, take your best shot, Superman. I'll give you a free one. Uh, and then Superman just flicks him with his finger and knocks him the heck out because, and this is, I don't know if this is true at all, but apparently at the North Pole, the Earth's magnetic field doesn't work or something. And so Superman, knowing that, uh, knew that Alexander uh, would be powerless there. Yeah, which I guess makes just as much sense as any of the other science in this book. In fact, it seems to make more sense than most of the science in the book. Whether or not it's reality, you know, I have no idea. But yeah. at, least, at least it seems to have some sort of basis. Yeah, uh, it, it made a little more sense than some of the other stuff. Um, but anyway, he's defeated and I guess goes to jail. Uh, and the uh, as uh, Lana Lang reports, uh, the um, the peace talks re-engage and hopefully everything will be hunky-dory with the world. Who knows? Uh, 
weirdly, there's no Lois in this issue or last this whole story. And and as a kid, I thought I was expecting to see her, and she wasn't around. Yeah, no, it's you know what I I didn't even take note of that until you just said it. Uh, that is a little weird to to not see any Lois. You know, we got um, Jimmy, you know, we got Lana, and. That's it about the that's it for the supporting staff that I'm supporting cast that I'm familiar with, you know yeah, I, I don't really know this director. Uh, right, I again I don't he's not somebody super familiar to me either. Uh, in a cursory glance at the letters pages though, it seems like Lois and Clark have had kind of a falling out, so she's kind of written out of the book at least temporarily. So I mm-hmm. think that's the explanation. Um, how do you feel overall about the Planeteer as a villain, Paul? That's that's a great question. I feel like he is he he is the conceptually a good villain. I think we we have potentially a power set that could be threatening. We have a psychological overlay that could be fun to play with in future stories. Yeah, uh, I I think he is a good villain as created. I don't know if he's used to the best effect in this particular story. Although I enjoy the story. Yeah, I had fun with this. Um, yeah, he's a character that on paper sounds like it would work just fine. I could see why Julie would have uh, approved the story. Um, but in um, execution, uh, something is a little lacking. Uh, and he only appears once more uh, in comics. In one other appearance. I, don't, I, ha- I haven't read it, so I don't know if he lives or dies. Um, but in uh, Action Comics number 562... Um, which is from December of 1984, so uh, a little over a year later, he shows up and has a team up with the Queen Bee, and then never heard from again. Which I, I feel that's that's kind of a waste, you know. Uh, there's unfortunately there's not a lot of new villains being created, and you have one here that has some potential. So I, I I'm a little surprised they didn't try to exploit it further and and try and get into the psychological end of it. I I, I think you could have some real interesting stories yeah i mean in the bronze age i think i mean they really tried to add more villains to superman's rogues gallery which he's got some great ones but there aren't a whole lot of them uh comparatively speaking to a lot of other heroes um you know beyond luthor brainiac bizarro the parasite metallo uh it starts to get like eh, yeah, when, you, of- when, when you start getting into like toy man and prankster and people like that it's like yeah Toy Man and Prankster I can't stand. Uh, I can tolerate the Toy Man a little bit. I like Mixius Pitalik. I do. Um, Actually, I do as well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he, he doesn't have uh, a lot of great additions to the Rogues Gallery in the Bronze Age. I think they tried it with Carbrack. Uh, they tried it with... Uh, uh, what was the guy who looked like uh, Sean Connery's character in Zardoz? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I know exactly who you mean, and I can't think of what his name is right now. Yeah, I- I'm blanking on it right now. But then he became kind of a friend. Uh, there was that Viking guy, uh, uh, who again I can't think of right now. I'm and and listeners are gonna be like, oh, it's this guy. Um, the Galactic Golem was kind of cool, but he only showed up a- like a couple times. Um, Terra Man, who I don't really like, but he seems to be this recurring villain. Um, um, and then. I think the last really great villains that they added pre-crisis were the Atomic Skull, who they used a bunch, and Mongol. Yeah, well, and, and those are both good ones. Yeah, uh, I like those guys a lot. But I mean, I guess what I'm saying is like they 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 tried, but there were only a few that really stuck. Um, 
So, uh, I guess it's hard to come up with good villains for Superman. Superman, and I will uh, acquiesce to that conceit. And the uh, the Superman villain who looks like Sean Connery is Vartox. That's right. Yeah, I still can't remember the name of that. But Waldem- Waldemar of the Flame, who was the Viking guy, and also became like a friend frenemy, uh, like Vartox did. They introduced him, uh, but then villain turns pal really quick. Um, yeah. But what can you do? So, so, I mean, what's your take on him as a villain overall? Um, it was fun to revisit this this thing that I, I mean, a, a comic I hadn't read in going on thirty years. You know that that was my introduction to Superman in comics. Um, I think the Planeteer loomed a little larger in my mind than he had any right to. Right. Um, he's all right. It it. I'm interested in reading that other appearance. In fact, maybe I'll have to have you on my show, and we'll talk about that one. I, I would look forward to that. That sounds like yeah. a good idea. So, yeah, so we'll, we'll plan for that sometime in the not-too-distant future. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to track that issue down. I don't have it. I, I looked up this morning. I'm like, do I have this one? <laughs> you know, nope. Yeah. I bought a bunch of Bronze Age uh, Supermans uh, at Con, but that was not among them, unfortunately. Well, I, I will find it. Uh, but in the meanwhile, on Back to the Bins, we give ratings to the books. Uh and I, I think we can just, you know, obviously we'll do the covers separate for the two issues. But as far as the stories and the art, I think we can combine them and give them grades because it is a continuing story with the same team. Uh, yeah. And so it's it's a letter grade between A and F, you know, like a school grade. And we do the cover, the art, the story, and then the book overall. Okay. You want to go first or second? Uh, I'll go after you. Okay. So then as far as the covers go... The first one, I find it, I find it oddly compelling, even though I don't think it's a great cover. Uh, there's something about it that just draws my eye to it, and I don't, like I said, as a 15-year-old, I don't think it would have, but as a much older than 15-year-old, I kind of like it. Uh, so I'm gonna say a C plus on it because I think it could be a lot better, but there's something about it that I like. The cover yeah. on part two. I am a much bigger fan of. I think it's really solid. It's very interesting to look at. I think the renderings are better. I'm going to say a B plus on the second cover. The, yeah, I, I'm sorry. Oh. I was going to do all mine and then let you do all yours. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> no problem. The artwork interior, I feel like it, it tells the story, but it's not particularly dynamic in any way. Unfortunately, as much as I love Kurt Swan, that's kind of the story of his artwork it's it you know usually lacks a certain dynamism uh so i'm going to say a c plus on the artwork you know it's good it's tells the story but it just doesn't feel as exciting as it should uh and the story is fun it was an enjoyable read but every once in a while like the whole concept just made me scratch my head and say huh so i'm going to say a b minus on the overall story and i'm going to give a b minus to the total two books okay um i'm gonna kind of cheat and just kind of give an a grade just overall and kind of talk about the aspects if that's okay that's fine because i just i just don't rate things by stars or numbers or grades i just like do i like it or i think it was crap or do i think it like had fun with it and but it could have been better that's i just kind of think in those kinds of terms Mm -hmm. Uh, i generally i'd give these issues a c um uh the covers uh they draw you in uh, I think uh, the first part, 
although the composition is weird, I think the the choice of positioning the figure is so unique that I get I give it a, a little extra little extra something. I got to give credit for for trying something different. Um, and um, even though I, I I like you like liked the action comics uh, cover better, the second part, um, there's something a little generic about it. I think maybe I like the first cover slightly more just because they took a chance on something uh, uh, um, a little outside the box, a little unusual. Um, I've got nostalgia for this first issue because I remember it when I was a little kid. Um, but overall, I, I, I just say these, these, this story, this issue was middle of the road. It's fun, um, but I, I, I wouldn't say it's a must read. Uh, uh, I wouldn't throw it in the trash, but I wouldn't, uh, but I wouldn't, uh, uh, proselytize about it. It's it's not Lady Cop, you know. It's uh, it's not something so oddball and strange that you have to show everybody you know. It's just familiar weird uh, in the way you would expect uh, a Superman or a DC comic uh, of this period. Um, so vanilla, but um, you know, the vanilla has some sweetness to it. You know. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you feel like I totally copped out on that? I'm sorry. No, no, it's it's. <laughs> no, I, I, there's no such thing as copping out. Well, oh, there is, I guess, but I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not the judge of cop outs. Okay. Uh, I think it's fine. You gave you a description of what you think of it. Yeah. Uh, so, and that kind of covers it for for this episode then. Uh, but I'm looking forward to coming on your show and uh, and covering the revisit of this. In the meanwhile, I want to thank you for coming on here. This was fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I had a blast. Thank you so much for having me on, Paul. My absolute pleasure, and I look forward to our next time to talk together. Thank you, everybody, for listening in. Go visit uh, Comic Reflections. Subscribe to it on iTunes or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks. And we'll see you next week. My upper groin hurts. I, that's when, you know. About where the appendix would guess, be, but I know it's not that. Guess what's going at the end of this episode? <laughs> My upper groin hurts. Yep.